Uh, this past week, one of the things that we as staff actually talked a, a few times about is around the idea of a Sabbath. That for the Israelites, they had this practice built into their rhythms of life. Going back to all the way to create the creation story, but this practice that once a week, they would stop. They would rest. They would worship. They would celebrate. They would leisure. They would do all of these things regularly. Then every seven years, there was another practice where uh, the grounds wouldn't be uh, sort of farmed and uh, things like indentured laborers who were in debt would be released. There, there would be all these patterns. And then every seven times seven years, there would be this year of Jubilee, this giant celebration that was built into the rhythms of what it looked like to be an Israelite. They were very rhythm festival based, and they had others throughout the whole year. They would have uh, festivals like the, the Festival of Booths or Sukkot, this, this uh, remembering of their time in the desert. They would uh, have this Day of Atonement. They would have uh, the Pentecost, the Harvest uh, Festival as well, and they even added festivals as they went. Uh, just a couple weeks ago uh, was the Festival of Purim, which is uh, a festival marking uh, Queen uh, Esther and, and how she worked to help release her, uh, give freedom or protect her people um, in Persia. And so um, you have all of these rhythms and all of these festivals in the life of what it looks like to be an Israelite. These practices where they would remember who God is and what God had done for them and their history at some point. Now, in the life of Jesus, we actually see him quite a bit interacting with these festivals. Um, there are multiple times, particularly in the book of John, where Jesus uh, is in Jerusalem for these festivals. He has a teaching on these festivals. Um, it, it's quite a, uh, a common event uh, throughout, particularly that gospel, uh, that Jesus is in Jerusalem for these festivals. Now, we are spending time walking through uh, the final week of Jesus during this, this Lent season. And uh, we looked at the triumphal entry, the sort of Palm Sunday story uh, of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Uh, we looked uh, at, at the way that Jesus interacted with the leadership, uh, particularly the priests and some of the Pharisees, uh, and some of the ways that Jesus really condemned uh, some of the practices that were going on uh, amongst the spiritual leadership of the church. Um, and then um, after that has happened, Jesus now kind of enters into a bit of a private time with his disciples. Um, and some of the gospel writers are much like John has multiple chapters devoted to this time frame and things like the washing of the feet and teaching on the vine and things like that have happened during this time frame. And so um, if you did life groups last week, one of the discussion, the text for discussion was around the foot washing. And now we get to kind of the central holiday for the week, the, the, the holiday that would have been... Um, the reason why so many Jews would have been in Jerusalem for that week, and that is the, the Pesach, or the, the Passover. And, and uh, for some of you, probably even look at this table and be like, Chris, we have already done this. And that's true. Uh, this is, I think, our third time at least doing this. And that's the point. Uh, I would argue that's exactly the point, that it becomes this routine thing. Now, we as a church certainly do communion every week, and we'll talk about that as we go, but um, part of the rhythm that existed for them that God had instructed them to do was to remember and to remember, to, to kind of set back uh, and remember this story. <clears throat> I remember, um, I'm about to blow a few of your minds, um, I had to choreograph a dance in high school. Um, so... Uh, I, have a, I have a secret world of, of ballet and dance in my background, um, and I know I don't have the physique anymore of that, but um, 
I had to choreograph a dance my senior year. Now, I went sort of the more probably cool route, I guess, um, and did actually a kind of a, a version of a number from Stomp, which if you were in the late 90s, it's, it's like music. It's like a, everybody's playing trash and making a lot of noise, but it's kind of cool. Um, and so, uh, but when the dance started, it would feel, um, the purpose was to kind of feel haphazard. So there were different people making different noise. It was just kind of all over the map. The noises were just happening. There was no rhythm to it. No, it felt a little chaotic. And then things kind of started switching. And then there was a rhythm. And then like a basketball would bounce on a beat. And then somebody would start playing a tin can. And, and there would be this sort of rhythm to it, this sort of repetition. And it went from noise and chaos to music because of the repetition. And, and I think in some ways, some of the ways we, we think about festivals and holidays and things like that, particularly in a Jewish mindset, is to provide rhythm, to provide music in the midst of chaos and noise, this re-establishing, re, um, re re returning to these themes over and over and over again. And so that's what I want to invite us into today because we will be talking about Jesus entering into one of the festivals in the life of Israel. And so Luke 22 is where we're going to be. <clears throat> All four gospel writers have this story in some ways, told a little bit differently depending on who you're reading, but we'll look at Luke today. And it starts off, uh, we'll start at verse 13, and they went and found it just as they had told him, and they prepared the Passover. And so um, prior to this, Jesus has told his disciples in sort of this almost kind of odd uh, kind of James Bondy way, like, hey, you're going to find a guy carrying a pot, go to that house, and then tell him the teacher needs a room. And, and so however it's been set up or however sort of miraculously Jesus has worked this out, um, there, there's this room that was going to be prepared for, for him and his disciples to celebrate this Passover. And so, um, and not only that, uh, some of the gospel writers don't, don't make the, the language of Passover specific, but Luke certainly does. He uses the very term for Passover here. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Now, here's what I'm going to need from some of y'all today. I need two volunteers. And I prefer uh, a, a man and a woman or kid, guy, gal, whatever the categories would be. Did you do it last time we did it? Are you sure? Okay, great. I see it set in. Uh, Rory, yes, you can come up. Why don't we do that? Sorry, I got, I got one. Let's do one more. I can keep it. All right, we're, we're doing an adult-friendly uh, table. Hopefully your parents are okay with wine. I'm just kidding. It's not wine. <laughs> All right. Here's a cushion. It's not going to be the most comfortable thing, but your kids, your knees don't hurt you yet. <clears throat> it's coming. Another 20 years. You'll be fine. All right. And so... They would recline at the table. Now, obviously, this is very low. So those of you in the back, you should sit in the front more often. And so we got seats up here. Um, but uh, if you've seen the painting of Da Vinci or something like that, sitting at the table, that is very anachronistic. That's not how Israelites would have sat around the table. They would have low tables. They would recline. And um, it would usually kind of circle around the room, kind of a horseshoe shaped. And so um, we're going to sit a little lower today to kind of represent what would have been Likely Jesus and his disciples participating in this meal. Cool. You guys good? All right. <clears throat> so to be the Seder. So 
I know you're wearing a mask, and that's totally fine, but you might be invited to eat something. Okay. Uh, um, and so this data would include four main parts, uh, and it would be tied into Exodus 6, the, the story that would be told throughout this night um, that they were delivered. And so Exodus 6 reads this way, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to the all. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you as my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so in that text, we see the fourfold sort of breakdown of Passover. They would actually have four cups and it would be these four categories. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery, I will redeem you, and I will ultimately establish a right relationship with you once and for all. And so they would use um, the, the wine, these cups, uh, to represent the four stages of the meal. And so uh, at some point, to start the whole thing, um, the leader of the table, oh, you should probably get some of the drink. The leader of the meal, which uh, presumably seems like Jesus, the way the story's told, <clears throat> would take the cup, I'll get a little more for me. He would take the cup, and he would bless it. He would sing a blessing. Now, growing up in South Florida, I have been to like a thousand bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs, so I get to cheat a little bit, as I've heard this a thousand times now. Um, but, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech halam, pri hagafin, and they would bless the cup, and they would drink from it. So now, you can have some juice, if you want. Sweet. It's only downhill from here, don't worry. And so they would start declaring, I will, I will bring you out. And that's, that's sort of the, the first cup and what it's re- represent, meant to represent. Now Jesus sat down with them, but he says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he, I will not eat it, uh, yeah, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, this would have caught his disciples quite a bit off guard. Because at some point, the purpose of this meal is to think about the suffering of the Israelites a thousand plus years ago for the people sitting at that table. When Jesus starts speaking, what, what we get recorded of his moments of speaking is for him to go, I am going to suffer, and I am going to die. And there's this kingdom coming, and there's going to be a celebration into the future. And and so suddenly, Jesus starts moving this Passover meal into present day with a little hint at the future. This thing that was so meant to, to represent things that had happened long ago, Jesus right away starts speaking about his suffering, not the Israelites' suffering. He kind of moves it into modern day for him. The disciples would have been confused. They were confused often when Jesus talked about his death. And so likely at the table at this moment, they're just as confused uh, about what's happening. So at this point, at least in the first century, if you've ever attended a modern-day Seder, Seder, there's usually like a bunch of other stuff that has been added since probably about the first century. This is probably about the, the minimal traditional first century that we know of, a practice. So uh, that's where we're going to stick with. So there's not going to be a hiding of the matzah somewhere in the room or anything like that. So um, just so you know. But they would have had the karpas, which is um, these greens. Now, the most common green for them probably would have been parsley. 
I don't know what you think about parsley. Parsley is not one of my favorite foods, um, but um, we have it here. Um, Israeli parsley, I guess, not, not Italian. And so um, the karpas would have been there, and, and they would have taken it. Now, um, we actually see the gospel writers talk about the, the fact that Jesus uh, and Judas, they dip into, they, 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 they have a dip at the table. And likely it's this. This would have been, once again, pretty common. I think one, one translation puts the word bread in there, but it's not in the text. And likely the dipping would have been these things. And what they would do, they would dip it, they would take it, and they would dip it in this, this watery stuff, right? So you can do that now. Hey, let's, let's do it together. Take some of it, as much as you want. Uh, and maybe stir it around a little bit. Some of the stuff might have settled. That should be in the water as well. It's white. You just can't see it. And then take a bite. All right. What's that water taste like? Can you tell? Salt. Yeah, it's salty, right? And it's parsley. If you want to take a drink because you don't like the taste, feel free. Okay? I understand. Salt water and parsley is not like the best thing in your mouth. Um, and they would, they would take of this carpas, this salt water too, and, and, and they would uh, take it together. And uh, it was likely connected to the story. There's different theories of exactly what it's meant to represent, but it's likely connected to the story of Joseph. That at one point, in the book of Genesis, we see sort of the formation of the family of God from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And then Jacob has all these sons. He has 12 sons. And one, he kind of plays a little bit of favorites. He kind of treats as the firstborn, even though he's not. And he gives him a coat. And all of his other brothers get really jealous. And they go out to the desert, and they ultimately throw him into a pit, but make the coat all bloody and tell his dad that he died. And Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt, which is actually this whole story that's about their release from Egypt. This is how they got to Egypt. This is because of Joseph, because he got sold into slavery. And ultimately, um, we see the story kind of play out. And we'll cover how the story plays out. But their connection to Egypt, their time in Egypt, with this place where they're going to be enslaved for, 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 for years, is connected to the story of Joseph. So this slavery... Um, this this storyline was meant to start with tears. It's a, it's a sad moment. This is a moment where Israel will end up not in their promised land and into slavery. And so this water was meant to represent sort of like tears, saline, salty water that tears would represent. Now, this is the part where the kids speak up at the service. But you guys are the adults at the table. They are the kids in the room. Okay. And so you all get to be the kids at this ceremony, and the kids uh, do what kids do, which is ask a lot of questions, like, why, 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 why? Kids say that a lot, and, um, and it does not have to be decent in order. So for the next, like, 20 seconds, I want you all to participate in this by asking all the questions that kids do. We'll have most of them up on the screen, and, and just say it, blurt them out. We'll, we'll just do it all at once. Are you guys ready? Go ahead. Crazy, right? I'm an adult now. You are an adult now. Well, I am glad you asked all those questions. What is this meal about? That, that would be the central piece. They would move into a time to go, let's talk about the meal. Let's talk about the purposes here. That we had an ancestor that God had called out of, of a place like Babylon and brought him to this land, this land that he promised. 
And, and he told him that he would bless all the nations. This work of blessing this world was going to be done through Abraham and his family and offspring. He promised this offspring, even though Abraham and Sarah were old at the time. And they would have a kid. They actually have a couple kids, but... Um, or Abraham would have a couple kids, but uh, one of those being Isaac, and then Isaac would have some kids, and one of those being Jacob, and then Jacob has a whole bunch of sons, and, and the family kind of explodes from there. And God's promise keeps going through each generation, telling them that he's going to bless the world, and he's going to, be, um, he's going to use this family to bring about this work. But times in uh, Israel aren't always lush and full of food. There were a few famines that had come through time. Abraham experienced it, and eventually Jacob experienced it. And Jacob and his sons know Egypt is a place full of food, full of abundance. They had stored up seven years' worth of abundance just in time for a famine. And so they make a plan to go down there. Now, Egypt luckily stored up seven years of food because of one guy, and that is Joseph. Joseph, who had been sold into slavery, who had ended up uh, in, in basically the dungeons of Egypt, was also really good at telling dreams, interpreting them, telling what their meaning was. And eventually, Pharaoh um, gives him a role, kind of a secondhand man um, in his courts. And one of those dreams was that this famine is going to come, and so they have tons of food down in Egypt. And so Jacob and his kids all decide to make a trip down to Egypt, and they end up settling in Egypt uh, over a course of time. But now, as a family grows, as a people grow, as a kind of a, basically an immigrant population within Egypt grows, what happens is something that's pretty common, and that is the leadership decides they've had enough of that. And they eventually try genocide. They try to enslave the, the, Egypt, or the Israelites. Um, they decree all these boys that would be thrown into the river, all of it. And eventually the Israelites cry out. Cry out to the God of Abraham, cry out to the God of Jacob, cry out to the God of Isaac, and they cry out for God to bring justice. And God raises up a deliverer. What's his name? Who's the deliverer in that story? Jesus is the main deliverer. But when, when they're in slavery, who, who gets Moses? There we go. Moses comes to be the deliverer. And then through 10 acts of justice against the injustice of Pharaoh, against the sins of Egypt, God brings about a change, this sort of ultimate catastrophic series of events. And as the last act of judgment against Pharaoh's evil, well, we'll get there. But this is a story of liberation, a story of being set free under the oppressive evil that God has delivered his people through. That is what we celebrate tonight or this morning. And so at the conclusion of that story, at some point they would end up reading uh, Psalm 113, and this would be a little more of a call and response uh, of the Psalm 113. So it'll be on the screen. Praise Yahweh. From the rising of the sun to its setting. For Yahweh is high above the nations. Who is like Yahweh our God? Who is seated on high? Who 
Brachata Alanai Alahinamelakalam Bare Prihagafen. And let's let's do that in English. Here's what that prayer or song says. Let's say it together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. So you guys can have another sip if you want. We got more in case you finish it. And ultimately, that second cup, going back to Exodus text, would be the tups that, that they would say, I, I will deliver you from slavery. So that would be the next cup. Now, um, there used to be a rabbi named Gamaliel. We all know Gamaliel real well, right? Um, Gamaliel is actually mentioned in the New Testament. Very briefly, we find out that um, Paul, who helped plant a lot of our churches and write a lot of letters uh, in the New Testament, studied under Gamaliel. He was a pretty famous rabbi. And he said that the... the the Passover meal had to involve three things. One was unleavened bread, one was bitter herbs, and one was the Passover lamb itself. Now, why unleavened bread? I'm glad you asked. Um, in the story of Exodus, as they are leaving, uh, un- after, after the firstborn has been killed, after ultimately Pharaoh has finally allowed them to leave, they have to leave quickly. It actually says in Exodus 12, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough and that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. And so next we find in Jesus' story him taking the bread. That's what he does. And he is given thanks, and so there's a prayer that he would say, It's a blessing over the bread, and he would have broken it and provided it for uh, those at the table. So you guys can have your own. If you want to break it, you can. You don't have to. But he would have broke it, and then he would have said, now normally, he would have spoken of the bread of affliction. This is the bread of our affliction of, the, of our time in Israel when we had to get out but as he breaks the bread, he suddenly says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this, this image that would have been connected to their deliverance, Jesus starts using it and speaking of himself. This bread at the table that he would have broken and spoke about. Now, bread's always a fascinating thing. Like In order to make bread, you got to kind of be rough with bread. You, you got to knead it and roll it out and do all that kind of stuff. And then you throw it into an oven to be cooked under high heat. And then ultimately it becomes a source of life. It brings life and sustenance. And I would argue that the very imagery that bread represents plays out on that Easter week. We are going to see Jesus beaten and, and flogged. We will watch him basically be thrown into the eye, eye oven of death and suffering and ultimately come out and through his resurrection provide life, sustenance, spiritual nourishment. And so um, this bread is tied into all of those images that Jesus is reworking, reusing for his purposes to talk about who he really is, that there's not a physical delivery, a spiritual delivery that's going to happen. Now, we also have this little bowl of stuff, all right? It's everybody's favorite part. And so uh, you can dip whatever you want. You can dip the parsley, you can dip your bread in it, um, whatever you want to do, but to get some of this white stuff out of there. Cool. And take a bite. I should provide a warning, but I'm not going to. It's a little much, isn't it? <laughs> Here. I hook you up ahead of time. 
How is it? <laughs> All right. Can you tell what it is? I don't know how much you eat this stuff. All right. It's pure horseradish. Mmm. And the purpose is to make you cry. That was literally the purpose of eating the bitter herbs, that you would sweat a little, that you might have some tears. Um, I thought about wasabi, but that wouldn't be as authentic as maybe horseradish. And so, similar family. Are you going to be okay? I can pour some more. Um, all right. You can eat some more bread without it if you want. It'll help too. And so they would eat this bitter herb, this sort of spicy um, herb at the table. And the kids would ask, why do we eat the bitter herb? Because it's terrible. Um, and so they would eat it. And remember, Exodus 1, that, that um, while they were under Pharaoh, that the slavery came and it, it made their lives bitter, the morah. And, and morah is the, is the term for the, the herb. And so it's a related root word. And so they remember um, the bricks and the slavery. And once again, this callback. It's a callback to their time in Egypt, that they would cry over the, the, the slavery that they experienced, and um, this would be a reminder of that. Now, I said, there's, what were the three things? There was the unleavened bread, there was the bitter herb, and what else? Do you remember? Anybody remember what the third one was? The lamb. Yeah. Now, really peculiarly, though I think very intentionally, the story with Jesus doesn't involve any lamb. There's no mention of a lamb at the table. It would have been the centerpiece of the Passover, it would have been probably the most important thing. Uh, every Israelite would, uh, family would um, have a lamb that they would have to keep in their household for a certain amount of time so you could become attached to it and name it and love it. And then they would have to kill it. And so they would um, find this perfect lamb. They would have to have no spots. It would have to have, uh, meet all the qualifications that the priests had given to it. And then they would provide it at the Passover meal. They would have a lamb that they would all eat from. And once again, this is telling a story. That, that tenth plague, the, the sort of, as God is dealing with justice against the injustice of the Egyptians, this last plague is, um, it involves death. And it's a unique story because up till then, all the plagues were very much directed at just the Egyptians. The Israelites were kind of spared throughout them all. But then when God speaks of that tenth plague, he tells them, look, death is coming, but it's coming on every household. And, and ultimately... What I would argue God is communicating is like, look, sin itself is everywhere. It's not just the Egyptians that are sinful. Israelite, you guys are my people. I understand that. But there's still sin. And we ultimately find out from Paul that the wage, the wage of sin itself is death. The thing that sin brings about ultimately is death. God's response. Now, there's a distinction that God gives too. And he tells them, look. There's a way for death to, to not visit your household as a family, as, a, as to your youngest child, whatever it may be. But that death can pass over your household. It still requires a death, but death can pass over if you take a lamb and you take a hyssop branch and you get some of the blood and you put it on your doorpost. And so this instruction was given, and so this, this lamb would be used ultimately for, for that, that wage of sin, that, that penalty of sin, which is death, to ultimately be passed over the household. Not because the Israelites were perfect, not because they did anything amazing, but they believed that God had provided a substitute. And there were Israelites, there were some Egyptians, it sounds like, as, they, uh, as you read the story when people left. And, and so um, if someone really believed that Yahweh was the deliverer, this is what they would do. 
And that's it. And God provided a way through this lamb. And so it's interesting because, as I said, it's not at the table that we know of in Jesus' story. It's missing. But we'll get there in a second. Because what he does next is he takes the cup, which would have been kind of after the dipping, after the bread, this would have been the third cup in the sequence. And he blesses it. He says, So we'll read that again. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And we would take a sip if you want. Now remember, the third cup. This is the cup where God says, I will redeem my people. And what does Jesus say? He takes this cup. He says, this cup is poured out for you. It's a new covenant in my blood. So this cup, this cup of redemption, the cup that's main point is to symbolize the redeeming of the people, Jesus holds up and goes, it's not, it's not about back then. This is about me. It's about my blood, about what's about to happen to him the next day. I'm sure the disciples still are confused about exactly what Jesus is talking about, but Jesus knows what he's talking about. It's like, my blood is going to be poured out, and it's going to establish something brand new. Because they had had covenants before, these sort of agreements that, that God had made with his people. And usually these agreements, these sort of contracts, these covenants, uh, often the way that you sort of seal the, the deal, the sort of sign it, is, is with symbols of the penalty of the covenant. So if the penalty is that you would lose stuff, like you would bring that to the table and you would walk through it or things like that. But, but here... And, and for God's main covenants, they were often sealed with blood because the penalty for the breaking of the covenant was death. And so that was true. Um, it's true of Abraham, even though Abraham didn't have to walk through it. It's true of the people of Israel. Actually, I would argue Jesus is picking up on that in Exodus 24.8. This is the blood of the covenant. This, they, they would have um, met at Sinai. Moses would have sprinkled blood on the people to sort of make the agreement between Israel and God. And here, Jesus is doing the same thing. But he doesn't call it the blood. He doesn't even say, this is about your blood. He says, this is my blood. There's no penalty for uh, those who believe. There's no penalty for uh, God's people. Jesus is saying, I will take on the penalty, the breaking of, of God's design, God's law, which we call sin. And so we set up that beautiful picture, or Jesus sets up, by taking that cup and establishing something new, something that's been promised in Jeremiah 31 and other places of Old Testament, all this promise of this new covenant that's going to come one day, and it's going to look so much different than the law. It's going to look so much different in some of the ways that, that things had functioned before, where God is going to take his spirit, he's going to put it in his people. Gentiles and Jews, and it's going to go out to the rest of the world at that point. And, and Jesus is saying that time is about to happen tomorrow. With my blood being poured out on that cross, and he uses that cup as a symbol to remind his people what it's all about and how death will pass over. Not in a way that's about their households and their door post, but sin and death, all the things that that all, all the sins that really lead to death, that ultimately those things will be passed over before a good God. And he brings about a transformation, changes our hearts. He does all this kind of stuff. And Jesus ultimately says that's not the end of the story. Now, I'll, I'll send you back to your 
to your seats if you want. You could take anything you want with you if you really like those crackers or something. But thank you for being my guinea pigs. So it's not hummus. <laughs> no, it's a little bit uh, different than hummus. <laughs> but yeah. But the unique thing is about Jesus talking about this, if we remember back in verse 16, he says this, For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus, I think, is pointing to is that there's another banquet to come. There's another banquet with a lamb. There's another banquet with a celebration with all of God's people. And we see that as we sort of continue to read through the story and we get to the book of Revelation, which include these tremendous images of 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 the culmination of all things, when God finally sets the world right, he creates a new heaven, a new earth, and, and kind of brings about a final judgment and justice back to this earth, restores it how it should be. And there's a celebration, and there's a lamb, and the lamb is Jesus. I would argue there's no mention of the lamb at the Passover story because the lamb is sitting at the table serving them their meal. And we see this tremendous celebration where every tongue, tribe, and nation is gathered at the table. The celebration of the great redemption for all of God's people who believe. And he points back. When he's sitting at this table, he does point back by using the elements of the past. He points to his present to talk about what's about to happen on the next day. What his body and his death will accomplish. And then he points to the future. I'm not going to drink from this again because there's something coming one day when we will culminate all things. And it becomes symbols to help make sense of the chaos that's about to be experienced by these disciples. These ways of learning what Jesus did and what he accomplished. I always like, um, if you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, the actual books, not the movie, um, there's a story with, with Pippin, who's one of the, one of the hobbits. And when uh, one of the main battles is about to happen, it looks like they might lose. There's eventually a horn that blows, and the army comes in and defeats um, defeats all the all the bad guys. And the, the Tolkien will go on to say that Pippin, whenever he heard that horn, he would remember, and he would remember the sacrifice, all those that had died, for him to still be here and alive. Remember what had been accomplished in the past for him in the present. And as we do regularly here, we take communion every week, and I would argue it's some of that. It's some of doing what Pippin does, which is getting this reminder. And every time it comes, you go, yeah, I remember. I remember the battle and victory that happened in the past. And I look forward to the future, but, but I remember what had been accomplished for me in the past. Because that's how the Israelites would have done it up until Jesus' day. They would have looked back at the past of all God did to deliver. And then we are now given this, this new institution and the new covenant with, by taking of this bread and this cup. And we remember what had been accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. And we also remember the future banquet that is awaiting us. And it's all, hear me, it's all by faith. I love even in John 6, Jesus speaks of some of these elements and he starts connecting it very much to this idea of, of faith. By faith and faith alone, 
There's no cleaning up before you come to the table. I, I think there's times to, to be introspective. I think there's times to really consider sin and the weight of that and how that, how that plays a role in Jesus' crucifixion. But at the same time, this table is completely about grace because this table is representative of the fact that we are all sinners in need of somebody else to do the work, and Jesus did it. And so if you believe in Jesus, it's a moment of celebration. I think sometimes we have some somberness, and I understand why. Sin is real. Death, the death of Jesus was real. But at the same time, we get to partake in this every week because there's a celebration of Jesus' resurrection and giving us life in his, at the expense of his death. And so um, we're going we're gonna to do that now like we do weekly here. Um, we've brought back some of the kind of traditional ways that we do communion. So there will be intinction, which is taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in a cup, and returning. Now, understand, COVID is still around. So I invite you to be very, very cautious uh, to not get your fingers in any of the juice. Uh, Just be careful dipping it in. If you drop something, just move on. Uh, Maybe grab a new piece or something. Um, But try to keep your fingers out of the juice if possible. And if you are not comfortable uh, with that method, uh, we still have uh, the little Uh, communion cups with the little wafers on top, uh, should you want to choose that method as well. We want to be non-divisive. We don't think it's worth the argument. We want everyone to participate in communion, however method uh, works best for you. Um, And if you are gluten-free, we do have gluten-free option as well. And so um, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to set up our time, um, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. God, I am thankful. I'm thankful just for the depths of what this practice you've given us really means. The beauty of how you redeem, of how you bring about um, a reconciliation between you and us, that that wage is paid for, that penalty of sin is dealt with by faith, so that all of us who call you Lord can celebrate can come to this table and partake and remember just like Pip hearing that horn would remember your victory 2,000 years ago and that this table would also be this moment of practice and anticipation of one day a sort of feast to be had the marriage feast of the Lamb so God we thank you that we're not just released from the slavery of the Nile, but have been released from the slavery of sin and death. It is only through your son, Jesus. We love you. Amen.